This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hearing loss is a commonly seen symptom in a primary care office practice, as is tinnitus and unsteadiness and vertigo. Fortunately, they're almost always due to a benign cause. However, these symptoms may represent something more ominous, an acoustic neuroma, also known as a vestibular schwannoma. It's important to consider this diagnosis when we see them in our patients, as there is the potential for serious consequences to develop if this remains untreated. But what type of hearing loss is associated with the vestibular schwannoma? What are the other associated symptoms? How do we go about evaluating these patients and how are they best treated? I'll be asking these questions of our guests, Dr. Michael Link, a neurosurgeon from the Department of Neurologic Surgery, and Dr. Matthew Carlson, the head and neck surgeon from the Department of Otolaryngology, both at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Our topic for today's podcast is vestibular schwannomas. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Michael and Matt, thank you so much and welcome for joining me today. It's great to be here. Our pleasure. Let me start by asking you to describe a vestibular schwannoma, where it develops, its you know, anatomic location, pathophysiology, and so forth. Vestibular schwannomas are more commonly called acoustic neuromas, but it turns out they're not from the acoustic part of the eighth cranial nerve, and they're not neuromas. So vestibular schwannoma is the correct term. So it's a tumor that arises from the schwann cells, which are the cells which make up the insulation or myelin around the nerve. And they arise from the eighth cranial nerve, the vestibular cochlear nerve, and technically always from the vestibular portion of that nerve. But as you noted, the most common presenting symptom is unilateral hearing loss as they press or interfere with the conduction down the hearing nerve. They're benign tumors. They tend to grow uh, very slowly. A lot of times now, because the prevalence of good quality MR imaging is so great, we're finding a lot of tumors when they're very small. And they're typically located within the internal auditory canal, within that bony canal that transmits the facial nerve and the vestibular cochlear nerve from the brainstem to the inner ear and then for the facial nerve on out to the face. As they grow, then they tend to push out of that bony canal and get into the area we call the cerebellopontine angle, or basically the cistern filled with CSF next to the brainstem. And as they grow, they typically slowly push the brainstem away. And because they grow slowly, that in of itself is of limited consequence. When the tumors get large, obviously they can cause mass effect symptoms. Usually we find them when they're either confined within the internal auditory canal or just within the cerebellopontine angle. Okay. I do some audiograms in my patients every few years just to check on how their hearing is doing. And I have found you know, a fair number of patients with an asymmetric hearing loss, and I've investigated them for a vestibular schwannoma. And I have to admit, I think in 40 years, I've maybe found one or two. So <laughs> these things can't be very common. Is that, is that correct? So historically, if you would have asked that question, how common are they maybe 10 years ago? And actually, even now, uh, some people reply the same way. The common statement is one in 100,000 people get one of these. And those are, that's really old data. There's a lot 
more recent epidemiological data, both from Rochester through the Rochester Epidemiology Project and other work from other locations that have robust epidemiological infrastructure. And it basically turns out that they're quite a bit more common, particularly today, for primarily because of enhanced detection. So now people get an MRI because they're part of a research study on aging, or they get an MRI because, quite frankly, they stub their toe or something like that. And so we always jokingly say the number one risk factor for getting a vestibular schwannoma is an MRI, <laughs> just because that's for how you mm-hmm. detect them. But it turns out now that So if you ask about lifelong prevalence, if you live to over the age of 70, one in 500 adults will acquire one of these just within the general adult population as high as one in 2000. So it's certainly more common than what we would usually say. And to get back to what you said, it turns out that if when you're screening people for asymmetrical or sudden hearing loss, basically within that cohort of people that go on to get an MRI, between one and 4% of people will ultimately show something like a vestibular schwannoma, some sort of retrocochlear pattern hearing loss or retrocochlear lesion like a vestibular schwannoma, which is by far and away the most common or a meningioma or something else like that. Are there any risk factors for these things? Uh, Are some people more likely to get them than others? There's no real known risk factor. Um, There was uh, several really large, very interesting, I think, studies done trying to prove or disprove whether cell phone use might contribute to the development of a vestibular schwannoma. Mm -hmm, And um, it turns out the results are very inconclusive. So some of the authors of those studies, uh, the biggest one was called the Interphone study, which was a big international study, cost millions and millions of dollars. And about half the authors say, clearly using a cell phone is a risk factor for developing one. And the other half of the authors say, clearly it's not. So like a lot of things in medicine we deal with, I would say, and then you would also argue, well, it's a settled issue because you can hardly find anybody on the planet to do a controlled study anymore who isn't using a cell phone. But we would say we don't think cell phone usage is a risk factor for getting one of these. Potentially, patients who've had radiation to their head and neck in the distant past may have an increased risk of getting a schwannoma, although that also is not strongly proven. The biggest risk is if you have a diagnosis of neurofibromatosis type two. So that's autosomal dominant disorder from chromosome 22, meaning that if somebody has that, there's a 50-50 chance they'll pass that on to their children. I think of these as being unilateral. Is that true or can they be bilateral? Yeah, broadly, we kind of categorize vestibular schwannomas as occurring under two different circumstances. The first is just sporadically or randomly without any apparent hereditary component or patient predisposition. And about 95% of vestibular schwannomas on the earth are sporadic in nature and only occur unilaterally. So the person will probably not get any other schwannomas in their body or other tumors that are associated with predisposing conditions, hereditary predisposing conditions. Then the remaining 5% approximately uh, have a condition called neurofibromatosis type 2, or much less commonly a condition called schwannomatosis. The hallmark or the most common presentation of neurofibromatosis type 2 is having bilateral vestibular schwannomas, usually at presentation, although the condition is also associated with meningiomas and ependymomas and other tumors as well. But certainly by far the most common presentation of a, of a vestibular schwannoma is sporadically just in one ear. 
So if I'm seeing a patient, what symptoms might they describe that should at least raise my suspicion that I should maybe look for these things? Well, the number one symptom, as you kind of alluded to, is unilateral hearing loss. A lot of people, as you know, complain of hearing loss, and it should really be symmetric. In our part of the country, of course, a lot of people hunt and shoot, and they'll often say to us, oh, I I didn't think it was anything because I shoot on the right and I was losing hearing in the right ear, so I think it was that. So anybody with asymmetric hearing loss, we recommend be screened meaning get an MRI scan, or onset of unilateral tinnitus. So same thing, somebody who complains of it only rings in one ear, that is enough of a symptom to warrant getting an MRI scan to look. Imbalance or vertigo is a much harder symptom. So definitely we feel patients can have a sudden onset of vertigo as the initial symptom of a vestibular schwannoma. People who are continuously dizzy, probably not going to find a vestibular schwannoma. The other thing we've learned over the years is oftentimes when somebody presents to their primary care doctor or to an ENT doctor with a unilateral hearing loss, the treatment is steroids, oral prednisone, and the hearing gets better. And so then they say, okay, well, clearly it wasn't a tumor because the hearing recovered. But we do know now that even somebody who recovers hearing with steroids after a unilateral hearing loss still needs to be screened for a possible vestibular schwannoma. Mike, you mentioned a couple of things. First of the asymmetric hearing loss. I've been impressed with how few people recognize that it's a unilateral hearing loss. They know they have one, they're often surprised when we get the audiogram back and it shows their hearing is much worse in one ear than the other. And then the second thing you mentioned about firing a gun. When I first heard this, I was surprised that if you're firing a rifle, for example, the hearing loss typically, if you're right-handed, the hearing loss typically occurs in the left ear. Is that correct? It could be different depending on what firearm you're shooting and where the cartridge discharges. But uh, technically with the right-handed rifle, I think it's true that you're hiding your right ear down on your shoulder and it might your left ear might get more exposed. But you'll read those statements and textbooks and things and it's not perfectly true. Different guns have different signatures for inducing a noise-induced hearing loss. We also very commonly, at least in the Midwest, not just firearms, recreational firearms, you'll see some occupational stuff, but farmers turning their head one direction their whole life towards a combine or something when they're looking back when they're going is another very common cause of an asymmetrical hearing loss, at least Mm -hmm. we see in the Midwest too. So a lot of different causes for an asymmetrical noise exposure. The, The pattern is different not always, but generally different for a noise exposure and particularly for uh, loud noise exposures from a gun or something like that. A lot of patients classically get something called a 4K notch. So the hearing is relatively reasonable or relatively symmetric in both ears, but then at 4K, for some reason, there's a notch that comes out. So there's a lot, actually a lot of research about that. Like what if it's asymmetrical, but only at the 4K notch and the history have a history of noise exposure? Because that's critical in the military group. A colleague of mine works in the military system, and he said every single person has an asymmetrical hearing loss, almost, Mm. or it's highly prevalent. So what do you do in that population? Because you can't just screen everybody. Obviously, it's not everybody, but highly prevalent asymmetrical hearing loss because of noise exposure. So a lot of interesting unresolved questions and areas for research. Yeah. Well, you know, tinnitus, asymmetric hearing loss, vertigo, all common things that we see. And I imagine that makes this kind of a difficult diagnosis to establish. Yeah, I think it's definitely true. As Matt kind of alluded to, 
you know, we consider asymmetric hearing loss greater than 10 decibel difference between one ear versus the other at two consecutive frequencies or greater than 15 decibels at just one frequency on a standard audiogram. So if you were able to screen everybody in the United States with just that criteria, you know, you're only going to find a tumor in about 5% of those individuals. So how fast do these things progress? Do we have a lot of time to find them? That's a really good question. It's an interesting question. There's been a shift in the demographic at presentation. So in the pre-MRI era, so before around circa 1995, CT was the most common modality from 85 to 95. And before that, it was other things. On these less sensitive tests, you only detected larger tumors. So if you compare the demographic for people diagnosed today compared to just say 30 years ago, the tumors are substantially smaller. They're in people with less symptoms. And actually they occur in patients who are older compared to younger. So they can occur any at any age group, but now they're clustering more between 60 and 80 than whereas before they were between 40 and 60. So there's a lot of shifts that have happened. So, you know, a long time ago, probably many people lived their whole life having one of these and died of something else and didn't have a problem with it and never came to light. Maybe they were all the better off for not even knowing about it at the time. And now we're finding all these tumors in people who are less symptomatic who have smaller tumors and are who are older, which presents this huge treatment dilemma. You don't want to create this idea of over-treatment not only is costly, you also impart morbidity on the patient by treating it for something that wasn't going to cause a problem to begin with. So what do you do with all these new cases? So naturally, you start to observe some of these. You say, well, not everybody must need treatment then. And so you observe the smaller tumors. And it probably the group that really pioneered this work is the group from Denmark, it has become more mainstream over the years since the 90s and then more commonly in the 2000s and beyond. We'll just, if a person comes in with a small tumor and you just watch it, how many of those grow? The old data would say between 12 and 30% would grow after diagnosis. And the newer data, at least in the US, shows that probably 50% or 70% of them grow if you follow them long enough. But the important thing is if they grow after diagnosis, they typically progress very slowly. So a typical growth spurt for a tumor would be something like one or two millimeters per year. There are exceptions where tumors grow very quickly and and conditions where they grow even more slowly, but they can grow a little bit and then stop and grow and stop. So in the absence of life-threatening symptoms like hydrocephalus, we always tell the patient, this isn't an emergency. Larger tumors will need treatment. Smaller ones won't necessarily, but uh, it is a slowly progressive process over time, which allows many of the smaller tumors to be amenable to initial what we call active surveillance or wait and scan or observation, all these different terms for that. Mm-hmm. So in those that do progress and the tumor grows, what are the potential complications that they may run into? Usually it's just progressive hearing loss. And unfortunately, as people often lose hearing in that ear, they tend to get more tinnitus. If the tumor does get big enough to push on the brain stem, they can get imbalance from that, as well as they can get numbness in the face from involvement of the trigeminal nerve. And rarely they can present as trigeminal neuralgia, where patients get the episodic sharp electric-like pain. But for the most part, as Matt mentioned, you know, we now follow a lot of tumors What we see either with growth and even with no growth is people just progressively lose the hearing in that ear. 
So let's say we have a patient and they have an asymmetric hearing loss, maybe associated with some asymmetric uh, tinnitus. What's the next step? What should we do next to evaluate them? That's a, a great question. And how that's answered might be how we do it clinically now is different than what you'll read in textbooks. So I'm really glad you brought this up. So the first is detection of asymmetrical findings. So usually asymmetrical hearing loss, but sometimes asymmetrical tinnitus and other things. As Mike mentioned, so the definitions of asymmetrical hearing loss differ significantly depending on what you read, but probably the more sensitive measures that most people use are two frequencies of greater than 10 dB and there are two contiguous frequencies greater than 10 dB or one frequency uh, greater than 15 dB and also word recognition score. So typically this is a little more nuanced than what I'm just gonna say, but as a rule of thumb, if you have more than 20% word recognition score difference between both ears, that's the ability to discern words clearly then that would also constitute an asymmetrical hearing loss and warrant MRI. So historically, if you had an asymmetrical hearing loss, people would say you have a couple different options. You can just repeat your audiogram and get it later and see if that's still there. Or you could get an ABR for screening, or you could get an MRI. Or in the small number of people who have a contraindication or relative contraindication to MRI, you can consider CT. So those are all the kind of different talking points most people have. In the United States right now, an MRI is gold standard. In the United States, there's really no indication to get an ABR ever, even though the textbooks will say that. I actually don't believe you should just get another audiogram and see what happens to see if it, it normalizes. I suppose if you had one frequency or something, and you, in general, uh, you should just get the MRI as long as there's no strong reason why you shouldn't get it. The MRI with contrast will detect, today will detect even the smallest tumors, even with just a plain head, C, head MRI. CT scan in the small number of people who can't get an MRI, maybe because they have a pacemaker or they're severely claustrophobic or they have some rare contrast allergy or whatever, they get a CT scan. Even the best CT scans will not detect, reliably detect a tumor smaller than one centimeter. So you're, you're liable to miss some of the smaller ones, but but basically asymmetrical hearing loss, even with a sudden episode that gets better with steroids or without steroids, as Mike said, uh, you, you need the MRI. Okay. So let's say we get a head imaging with an MRI and we find nothing. Are these patients done? Do we need to re-image them or recheck them in the future? Or can we reassure them and send them on their way? Yeah, a good negative post-contrast MRI scan, then you can reassure them it isn't an acoustic neuroma or vestibular schwannoma, it isn't a tumor, and they have asymmetric hearing loss for some other reason, which would be the most common outcome. Okay. Matt, you told us that not all of these require treatment, but um, which patients do require treatment and what is the best treatment? The more we learn about this condition, the more we understand that individualized care is the best approach where you identify the patient's goals and what they're trying to get out of their treatment and match it to that is, is really the way to go. But having said that, in general, when you see a vestibular schwannoma, size is the first fork in the road. So if you have a small tumor, it's generally under about a centimeter or a centimeter and a half in the cerebellopontine angle, that would be considered a small tumor. And you can either observe remove through surgery or use stereotactic radiosurgery, low dose, single fraction, outpatient radiation treatment. Those are your three options. In that group in the United States, probably 70 to 80% of them are initially observed to start in that small group. And then the middle size group, that's variably defined, but we will usually say between 1.5 and 2.5 centimeters in the cerebellopontine angle. 
in that group, we generally don't continue to observe them because they're already getting to a size where you're starting to flirt with having problems and you just don't want it to grow much more than that. And so you typically won't observe and you'll recommend either stereotactic radiosurgery or microsurgery in that cohort at the time of diagnosis. There are exceptions, but that's the general approach. And then if you're over 2.5 or maybe three centimeters, depending on what definition you want to use for large, typically microsurgery is the only recommended treatment because at that point you have what we would consider more critical compression of the brain and you're risking hydrocephalus and other symptoms of mass effect, which you're turning from a difficult problem into a more life-threatening problem to some degree. So those are the size categories. So if, it, if the tumor is gigantic, you have to have surgery, we think, generally. And if your tumor is the size of, you know, the tip of a pencil, super small, will almost always push observation. But in between there, it's much more of a, a discussion with the patient on what they want to get. Like, for example, if the person is a, a reporter or something like that, and they could not tolerate any facial nerve weakness because it could be a problem with their career, they might be more likely to pick radio surgery because it's a little bit lower risk to the facial nerve. Other people might just really dislike the idea of having a tumor in their head, even if it's benign, and that weighs on them psychologically day and night, and they just say, I want it removed. And that provides them a cure. That's another way to think about it. There's all these different things that direct people. If you think broadly on the population level, if you're going to choose a treatment, meaning you're not just observing it, generally, if you're older or medically complex or less symptomatic, radiosurgery is the most common thing that we would often recommend. If you're younger, if your tumor's larger, or if you have symptoms of mass effect, then we're more likely to recommend surgery. To emphasize, those are very uh, loose rules of thumb. It really goes based on patient priorities. Mm -hmm. So on those with some, say, hearing deficit, uh, maybe some uh, tinnitus, and they are treated, does that arrest their symptoms? Or do they ever gain hearing back? Or does their tinnitus resolve? That's a great question. I would say we've studied this quite extensively over the last 15 to 20 years. And I'm going to say the depressing answer is we do not make patients better by treating their tumor. Certainly, a good result would be to either radiate or operate on a tumor and maintain the hearing where it currently is so they don't lose further hearing. Tinnitus is a very hard thing to predict. So some patients do report their tinnitus gets better. Sometimes we treat the tumor and the hearing gets worse and the tinnitus gets better. Sometimes the opposite happens where the hearing stays the same, but the tinnitus gets worse and so on. So managing post-treatment symptoms is very, very important. And the same thing goes with dizziness or imbalance, you know, it sure would make sense to the average patient. I think, look, I've got a tumor, I've got hearing loss, I've got imbalance, take my tumor out, I should be better. But in fact, you know, once the hearing is, is down, once the vestibular system has been affected, it doesn't regenerate. So we manage hearing loss with a variety of techniques and vestibular rehab plays a very big, important role in a patient's post-operative recovery. Okay. Do you see anything exciting in this field for the future? I think there's a lot of very interesting developments, and, and I'd maybe separate them out into the group with neurofibromatosis type 2, where you have multiple tumors, then maybe the sporadic population, even though they're distinctly different populations, and but I do the treatments you'll use are different, but there is some overlap with uh, with some of it. But the holy grail, the thing everyone's looking for is some sort of pill, some sort of pharmacological agent that would reduce 
growth or halt growth or maybe maybe even induce shrinkage. There's a couple of candidates that have been investigated over the last couple of years, but I think it's very safe to say that there's no clear evidence that those agents are successful at halting growth and certainly not causing tumor shrinkage in general. Within the neurofibromatosis type 2 group, we are more likely to use a little bit higher risk medications to, to try to arrest growth because the tumors themselves are higher stakes. There's more of them. They typically are, behave more aggressively. That's just kind of talking about treating the tumor. There are some other interesting developments just with hearing rehabilitation within patients with vestibular schwannoma. So classically, if you lost your hearing from a vestibular schwannoma, we would say there's no way to get the hearing back in that ear very well. Maybe 20 or 30 years ago, there was something called an auditory brainstem implant that was developed, but it really is a very, it provides very, very poor hearing in most situations and many times no hearing at all still. More recently, it's turned out surprisingly that cochlear implants work quite well in a lot of people with vestibular schwannomas if the acoustic nerve isn't injured too much. So after radiation, after observation, and even after surgery, in some cases, we can use a cochlear implant to rehabilitate hearing in that ear. And interestingly enough, cochlear implants also reduce tinnitus for a lot of people. And it's not just a masking effect. You're not just giving them noise to mask out their tinnitus, but you actually independently, you can reduce tinnitus in a lot of these people. There's a, a number of new developments. I would say those are kind of two of them, a couple of the more exciting ones that are worth bringing up. Well, you've given us lots of information on vestibular schwannomas. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? Well, I think the key thing, particularly for, you know, uh, primary care providers is that asymmetric hearing loss, asymmetric tinnitus does warrant further evaluation. And the best way to rule out a structural cause is to get an MRI scan with contrast. The great majority of the tumors we find, we find when they're small and they can be observed. The patient doesn't need to get rushed into treatment. And I would say that the treatment options that are available, and there's not a more controversial question in neurosurgery and otolaryngology than what is the best treatment for a vestibular schwannoma, but all of the treatment options have good outcomes and patients can get on with the rest of their life and have dealt with this benign tumor with good outcome. We've been discussing vestibular schwannomas with Dr. Michael Link from the Department of Neurologic Surgery and Dr. Matthew Carlson from the Department of Otolaryngology, both from the Mayo Clinic. Mike, Matt, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks, Daryl. Thanks for having us. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.